Hello, everybody. This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 48. Today we have Stuart Lee with us. Stuart is the Chief Privacy Officer at VMware, a fellow in privacy with IAPP and privacy expert. Stuart, thanks for being here. Thanks, Christian. Great to, great to be here. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. So I know you were at the uh, the IAPP conference well, last week. How, the, how was that? Oh, fantastic. It's, it was so great to see people in person again. Uh, I think we, we forgot quite how much we missed doing some of those things. Um, and just really interesting hearing what folks are always working on. It, it's just really a great opportunity to, to connect with everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. How was it with COVID and everything? Was it a pretty good turnout in terms of number of people in person? It's pretty good. Um, I think as people are getting more used to being back in person again and more eager to get back out there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty good turnout and uh, yeah. hopefully more events in, in the next year or so. Yeah, we've had a couple of conferences here in, in the Atlanta area that have got the opportunity to attend. And not bad, actually, not bad turnout. And everyone's very enthusiastic. I think yeah. we're just happy to connect again. Absolutely. Uh, so you, ob you obviously have an awesome privacy background. Um, all the way up to Chief Privacy Officer VMware. Can we start there? Like, how did you get into privacy and, and work your way up into a Chief Privacy Officer position? Uh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people say that they fell into privacy, and, and I'm definitely in one of those buckets. Um, certainly, when I came up through learning about data privacy, it, it certainly wasn't one of those things that you went to college for or to grad for, grad, grad, uh, graduate school for specifically. Um, so I first getting first got exposed to a lot of the privacy-related issues when I worked in a data administrator role, helping to process uh, student records. And then I went to grad school and started doing research and there started understanding more about this thing called the Data Protection Act and, and what that meant and what that meant for my research um, and, and got a lot of that exposure, which was really interesting. And then I left, uh, finished my PhD and thought, what's next? And I found myself working in professional services, delivering global uh, security programs and privacy programs and, and just really fell in love with, with the topic area. For me, what, what is really interesting about privacy and, and this career is there's very few areas where you touch everything in a company and you, you touch so many different countries and the issues are both uh, legal, political, and then you've also got the societal as well. And it's just such an interesting area to be in um, and really working with some wonderful people along the way. I think it's cool because I feel like we're approaching a place as a society where we're a little bit more privacy conscious um, and that, that feels new. Like, I feel like five years ago, I wasn't having a conversation with my in-laws about privacy, <laughs> but, but definitely they're conscious of it now. Like the Alexa device or what the phone uh -huh. is tracking or what the app or what Facebook's doing, which is really cool to see. Um, uh -huh. where do you think we are as a society? Cause there's this like more consciousness for sure, but also a, a lot more threat to our privacy. So where are you at with it? How, how do you think we're doing it's it's so interesting. Uh, so I think the latest numbers are by 2023, there'll be about 75% of the world will be covered by some form of privacy law, uh, whether that's a comprehensive law like we have in, in Europe with the GDPR, a state-by-state -state law or sectoral-based law like we have more here in the United States. Um, so there is a huge variation globally, and but just in general, that increase in, in, in recognition of privacy. Um, 
and, and it's funny because you know you mentioned talking to your in-laws about it. I think historically we've always felt that there was a difference in comfort between different generations, um, and actually a lot of thought leadership now actually suggests that certain generations are more aligned to the concerns that they have, but where they start differing is what they're willing to trade off from there. And so I'm willing to trade some of my basic personal data or personal information so that I can get better services or faster services or tailored services, uh, or so I can have a bigger following perhaps on, on social media. And there's a d different degree of comfort across generations there. So I think that's where this particular industry is, is, is a really fascinating one because yes, you have this global regulatory landscape. And, and while there's some consistencies, there are nuances that are driven by uh, lo local variations. And then you have this different expectation across generational and social groups, uh, which you really see playing out in, in, in many different areas, particularly as we start consuming services uh, and in using social media and putting, selves out, putting ourselves out there, um, or indeed how we think about you know, what are we storing in the cloud or whether we have a, an Alexa or whether we have a, a, a smart device in our home. Um, so I think, you know, those are, those are some really just hot button topics. And really we are just starting to scratch the surface. I think there's so much more that we are now kind of starting to understand and starting to see come to the forefront and issues that we're starting to um, really grapple with that really, I think we're going to see a huge, huge surge in, in understanding and, and confidence or lack of confidence, uh, as the case may be over the coming years as we get much more uh, involved in those conversations. Yeah. One of the things I think about, and I don't know how we would even know until it's too late, but I always wonder how much we're subconsciously or unconsciously influenced by by things. You know, like uh -huh. for example, an, an easy one everyone understands is Amazon recommends stuff to me. So I'll bet my whole style and music choice is probably influenced subconsciously by that. But then mm -hmm. I think about the macro level, like what kind of articles I'm suggested, or even big things like political leanings. Uh -huh. And I just wonder. You know, how much influence is there that we just don't know about? Do you have a sense, or what, how do you think about that problem? Uh, it's it's such a it's such an interesting topic to get into because whenever you're navigating these sites, and if you're not thinking about the your cookie preferences or uh, or the way that you're being tracked across the internet, um, you're really missing a little bit of a trick on on how you are perhaps being followed in the in the information that you're being served you know you you look at a a vacation or you think about going on vacation and the next thing you know all you're getting is is more and more information about that french polynesia hotel that you you kind of wish you could go to um and that does drive some of your decision making i'm 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 confident it probably does where I think we are getting much better today as consumers and, and obviously for people like myself who are advocates in this field is starting to recognize that we do have uh, some control over those things. We do have the ability to reject reject cookies or reject other kind of tracking technologies uh, or who we choose to share our data with, um, particularly as some of those new laws coming up, giving us those permissions. Um, but of course, you, the last four or five years have really shown that uh, there are big social impacts uh, based on what information you consume on the internet and the information you share on the internet and the information that gets indeed served back up to you that 
you can ratify your beliefs further. Uh, so it, it really is a, an interesting time as we think about that convergence between privacy and technology and, and our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. I, I know you've done some work on privacy by design. And I think that's important because what surprises me is I'll see some of these, uh, I guess, lawsuits or some of these accus accusations or confirmations of what companies are doing. So, for example, um, Alexa passively gathers uh, voice and stores it in text format. Or uh, some of the stuff that uh, the state of Illinois was litigating with TikTok about their data gathering habits. And whenever I read these, I'm often surprised that the company chose to do that. Because to me, as a privacy conscious individual, it's pretty obviously maybe they shouldn't do that. And, and I think that comes back to in, internal at the company. What do you think is happening that that's not reaching like someone like you, like a chief privacy officer that says, hold on a second, we shouldn't be doing that. How is that allowed to happen? It's an interesting conversation when you start thinking about what does privacy by design mean in, in different circumstances, sure. because the whole foundation of privacy is about the individual, the individual rights, the freedoms, the control, the choice they have over their data, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with most things, it starts with that privacy notice and that transparency with, with the individual. So you know, while obviously I couldn't even begin to think about what kind of those internal conversations would look like, you know, from my vantage point, it's always a case of you start by saying, well, okay, what are we seeking to achieve as an organization? How does that impact an individual? How can we design it so that the impact on the individual is, is uh, not negative? Um, and that actually meets their expectations. And then how are we communicating out about that? I think that is the part where, uh, as, as a, as an industry, as a field, privacy is really looking to, to evolve and, and move forward is great. We've been talking about trust for a really long time and, and building trust with our consumers and with the people that, that use our products and services, et cetera. But how do we move forward away from trust and into choice and control? Because you can't get to trust without choice and control. If you're not making sure that people are aware of what's happening, of what's being collected, and how they can choose to turn those settings on and off, dial them up and down, um, delete them, update them, etc. I think those are the parts of the conversations that uh, if they aren't being had, they really need to go there. Because uh, that's when you start making sure that when you are building a service or offering, offering a product, um, you can really deliver deliver value and be de delivering value in the right way to your to your end users. Um, yep. And as a chief privacy officer, you're sometimes wearing two hats: the hat of what does the law say, what what are we required to comply with, and then the hat of um, and also sort of how does that how does that work for the individual and what's in their best interests. And then on the side of the business is moving in a particular direction, so how do I reconcile the two. Um, and I'm a firm believer that um, most will want to do the right thing and will want to make sure that they are demonstrating the right behaviors. But it, sometimes it's very, very difficult when you're trying to test that new technology or evolve that, that new degree of personalization and then trying to make sure that you're still doing it in such a way that is adding uh, that, that choice and control and transparency that you need to have uh, at, at the other side. It's, it's a real challenge that a lot of organizations are grappling with, but certainly one that I think uh, as long as you're keeping the individual and, and, and what's best for them in the center of that conversation, you're really going to uh, be hitting on the, on, on the right side of things. 
Yeah. A lot of that's kind of like at the product design level, like, you know, thinking through what you need to tell the customer, what options to give them, building out design. Are you able to get a seat at the table with like product uh, frequently? Absolutely. And and the key to that conversation is uh, talking their language, helping to not come to the table with uh, uh, some opaque principles, um, but starting to drive towards something that's a lot more uh, uh, centric to what they're trying to achieve. And so one of the areas that has been really booming in, in privacy over recent years is this idea of uh, privacy engineers. Uh, and as well as the privacy enhancing technologies and privacy enhancing controls. And so the things that you can start building in, um, one of the areas that I really, really love working with engineers and, and IT development teams on are those big picture uh, challenges and then having those moments of innovation, those moments of, oh, actually, we could do some really, really cool stuff here um, if we bring the right people to the table and start working through the the, the solutions together because you then have moments that you never even thought or solutions you never even thought possible. And so instead of being kind of this team that sat in the corner, throwing principles over the over the wall that are, you know, very broad, thou shalt not collect data or, or keep data for longer than necessary, kind of getting into, okay, well, what data do you need to, to collect? Why? How's that helping? Okay, well, now we can start designing those controls to really meet those needs. Um, and it is incredible when you get people around that common idea, that common way of thinking, and you're putting each other in, in the design room together, that you just come up with some very, uh, very interesting ways of solving problems. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that I actually appreciated about GDPR is they had they had the concept of the privacy impact assessment. And that kind of forced the conversation in a, with a lot of our clients to sit down with the product team and the privacy experts and, and do that kind of review. Say, do we really yeah. need to collect this kind of data? How are we going to present notices? Are there mm -hmm. inadvertent impacts that we didn't think we were going to have? And what I found is once the engineers understood the why behind all of that, they were super enthusiastic about it. They're like, oh yeah, I, I understand why we need to do this. I'm happy to dedicate the time and, and engineer this. And that's a very similar to what I saw in security because you know you have security by design. Is Once the engineering team understands the why behind it, you're off to the races and ready to go. Absolutely, and I, and yeah, I think that's the those those are those moments of magic that you you create something that is um, a beautiful product for your end user to use, but also for your engineers to work with you to create. At the corporate level, what what is your leadership team asking about? Like, what's the trend in terms of like board conversations, executives? Are, are they hyper conscious of privacy from a regulation perspective? Or they, how are they? What are they asking you at the board? For us, uh, privacy is very much part of the company's core values. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's something that we you know we really have uh, committed to. Um, and there's kind of the multiple angles of privacy that uh, you kind of think about in, in that board level. One is how are we making sure that we are complying with those laws um, from a product and service perspective, from a uh, internal operations perspective. How are we making sure that we are doing the right thing by our own employees and, and how we are protecting their data as well as our customer data? Um, and then, of course, there's always those new laws, those new decisions, those new areas of focus that are we ready? Um, you know, what what is what is the, the big issue that we need to be thinking about here? Is this going to create a substantial shift for our business? Uh, obviously, GDPR caught everyone's attention. Um, the recent rulings with with the Schrems 2 decision, et cetera, yep. you know, catches people's dis the attention. 
new laws in China coming out um, on November one, and and there's a lot of those areas where um, it's now front page of the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. It's it's not the kind of back in the technology section. It's actually front and center as a real strategic issue that must be thought at all levels of the organization. How, how are you guys handling, or, or and your colleagues for that matter? Like it's weird because, as you mentioned on the onset, you have GDPR, which I think the world is pretty conscious of at this point. You have California, which the states are very conscious of. But then you have this slew of 30 or so states that have miscellaneous pieces of regulation. You have all the different countries that have their pieces of legislation. And, it, and it's becoming whack-a-mole and very, uh, I guess, laborious to track all of that and to try to comply with it. How have you, have you seen anyone do this successfully and how are they doing it? Uh, those that I've seen do this most successfully and in a model that we often adopt or indeed do adopt ourselves is you you can't keep being reactive. You have to build a proactive privacy program, which is based on good principles um, or indeed related to that, some of the standards that you'll now see out there, whether it's through ISO or NIST or other areas yep. like that, um, and build that foundational uh, program. Because once you've got that foundation, a lot of the requirements that we see, over, uh, especially over recent years, they have a lot of commonalities. And then you have some nuances that you may need to localize or, or tweak and slight changes to your notices, et cetera. That really is, is the key. Where I see some companies uh, historically get tripped up there is you either try and deal with every single law individually, which obviously doesn't scale and um, becomes incredibly complicated, or indeed you end up with multiple different versions of a privacy program, um, which again, doesn't help you to scale and, and, and draw those efficiencies. Um, or they, they kind of get intimidated by the, the size of the challenge. Um, and so really rationalizing those requirements, getting down to what are your core principles, your core foundational needs. For many, they did that with GDPR and then they built from there. Um, but once you've done that, that gives you your roadmap and it gives you your your way of kind of deploying a program across different functions in the business or different countries. And then you start thinking about whether, do I have to write about localization in Russia? Uh, do I have to have a, a quicker way of responding to data subject requests in, in some jurisdictions versus, uh, versus the EEA? And, and then you can really start scaling from there. That also helps when you get a new law uh, like China where there's so many similarities to the GDPR, um, but obviously with some differences. And it helps you to to really say, we're 80% of the way there. This is now what we need to obviously update and, and change in that specific area or in these particular business processes because I have that that good, strong uh, foundation. Yep. Yeah, we. I was talking to Virginia Maxwivna on a previous podcast. She's a privacy expert as well. Yep. And she brought up the same thing using the principles-based approach. And um, there's ISO 27701, like, mm -hmm. which I guess is the closest thing to GDPR certification right now. And uh, we're seeing a little bit of adoption of that. But I like that because it, you have this opportunity to develop a management system and then a principles-based privacy program. Mm -hmm. And like you said, at the end, you just kind of handle the delta, which is often like data localization or some local nuance. And that's that's been pretty successful. But companies like VMware and like these global companies, like it's a massive undertaking. How, how big is your privacy team that's like doing legislation analysis? Is it is it a massive team or are you guys able to do it pretty lean? Oh, so we, um, 
I think you speak to any any privacy officer, privacy lead, they'll tell you they always want more. Um, we have yeah. a team of about 12 people or so now that cover yeah. uh, both the uh, the legal side and so legal advice and, and helping to work through those different issues that you really need a, a counsel to address. And then uh, we also have an operations team that 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 will interface between uh, uh, the legal side and then the, the business side. And um, where we've been really successful is to match and partner up with different key areas of the business to say, here is your legal advice. And we understand that you now need to take that and, and operationalize that in your process. Well, you know, we also have a, a person who is you know, business process centered that can help you uh, really navigate through some of those technical challenges um, because you can't always be everywhere. Um, but at least if you have a program where you're able to create the legal framework, create the operational framework, the guidance, the, the technologies, et cetera, and then help the business to then own that going forward, that helps you to scale. And of course, the other the other part to what you mentioned and the advantage of something like an ISO 27701 is that you do hang it off of your SMS, which means that you inherently kind of bridge those connections yep. between your privacy program and your information security program. Uh, and sometimes there is a um, confusion or disconnect or uh, uh, opportunities for better working relationships with a, from an information security and a privacy perspective in some teams. And uh, what I've always found is that once you can really articulate the role of a security team in helping privacy be successful and the role of privacy to help security be successful, that really does help the business to then understand, okay, I don't just deal with one thing and it addresses the other. We, we actually have to think about both challenges. Yep. Yeah. This might be Greek to some folks, but uh, RIS 360, we actually have an ISO 27001 and 27701 certification as a company. And what you can do is you create something called an integrated management system uh -huh. where you pair up security and privacy and kind of jointly manage them from a governance perspective. And that has been awesome for us. It was actually easier to do that and less burdensome than trying to handle it in a silo. And we have yeah. some clients doing it that way. And, and I think it's been really, really positive because when you get all the right people at the right table, it's like suddenly easy to make decisions, come to find out. Um, the other thing you mentioned was uh, privacy champions. That's the word uh -huh. I'm going to use. Uh, we have a couple clients that um, pretty small legal team, pretty small privacy team, uh, respective to how large the organization is. So what they did is they went out to like the engineering group, the security group, product teams and identified someone who was just naturally passionate about security and privacy, yep. ta educated them, tagged them as a champion. And now that person's charged with like kind of escalating issues and, and mm -hmm. thinking through privacy and being a partner at the business unit level. And that's really helped them scale, use different words, but like, that's what I was hearing from you too. That seems like a really good model to reach out to the business and give them ownership of that problem. It is. Um, the, 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 the one challenge I would say is that, um, and and it sounds a little bit aggressive, but your your champion network is sometimes doomed to fail if you don't cultivate and maintain and educate and just drive that network. Um, it definitely is a model that it really is the only way that you can help get into the business short of having a full-time privacy person yeah. in every single part of the business, which is the ideal, but never the case. But um, if you kind of, have your champion, you tap them on the shoulder and they say, yep, sure, I get it. This is important. And then just occasionally throw them things over time. They're never going to stay. 
their business challenges are going to take over. Um, the the delivery of their day to job day to day job is going to take over. The 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 things that they want to go after will change, and so you have to make sure that you're maintaining that network, keeping them engaged, keeping them um, up to date, um, and then also sometimes keeping them fresh. So it will sometimes mean changing changing people that are in that in that role. One of the things that uh, we've been particularly successful with is rather than having one person having smaller subcommittees because if you're talking to somebody in say a marketing organization or a sales organization it for themselves is very difficult to go out because their their groups are large and will have different reporting chains but they will know who the other influencers are across that network and you bring them in you share the ideas you hear their common concerns um and, and it really kind of gives you a uh, many people in that room to influence rather than just falling on one person uh, to, to drive the conversation. That's forward. great. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do the, the security champion subcommittee? Is it like marketing would have, you know, a team of marketing people or is it like marketing with product and, a, and several champions? Well, how are those usually structured? Sure. So you've got the folks who are maybe involved more in the marketing tech side. So helping to roll out your cookie compliance solution, for example. Then you've also got your field marketing teams. So those that are much closer to the the, uh, actual pushing out and delivery of marketing solutions. And then you have your, your, your global marketing organization that kind of runs and connects all the above. You need each of those represented. Um, but then also you're you know, just in the field marketing, you've probably got split across geos. And so you need to kind of pull in representation from across all of those. Um, so really it's, it's that understanding how those organizations are established and set up, finding the right people that are uh, passionate about the subject area or able to drive change and influence. Um, and then and then bringing them in. And sometimes it's it's easy that that person just somehow surfaces one day because you you come yep. across them. Other times you need to get them nominated, and you know you you tell them that they've been pulled in, and and you kind of show them why it's important. But um, by helping to understand their organization, you make sure that you've got the right people in the room, rather than just saying, "Hey, Stuart, you're the person." Off you go, which uh, is often a thankless task if you're trying to navigate a, a, a multifaceted uh, part of the business. That's that's a fantastic idea. I love the security champion subcommittees. Um, you mentioned earlier too, like the value of education. So some of the challenges I've run into when we're trying to help organizations is um, education. On one extreme, could be like a video that someone watches on onboarding that's varying degrees of effectiveness. On the other extreme, I've seen privacy officers, like every new hire, they'll do a slide deck and really try to engage. And depending on the organization's size, you know, you might have to do one or the other. What what have you seen be effective at scale in terms of educating the right people? Yeah, there's many different ways of doing it. I think the one way I would say is the days of the 45-minute training module are probably behind us, uh, which many people will be probably pleased to hear. Um <laughs> Certainly for privacy, that's not going to to, to win the day. Um, you need to, at least how we thought about it, is do it in a, in a uh, multi-tiered way. You have your baseline training. You get to the core of, of what people need to know and understand and how it relates to them. And I think the, the how is the important hook. If you just go and train people on the principles of privacy, it's sometimes difficult for them to understand, well, what do you expect me to do as part of my role? So that foundational training, 
what are the core basics and, and what does it mean for your company specifically? If you're bringing in off the, sh- off the shelf training, sometimes it doesn't have that hook into, into something that's going to create those light bulb moments for, for your stakeholders. So that's your baseline. Then you have to have your, your specialist arms and legs where you really dive into those very specific use cases, the, the common everyday type of situations that people will face and the tough decisions they have to make. And if you can root it in that, almost that conflict of, oh, hold on, I'm trying to do this and I got this, but here is my problem statement. It's incredible how much more engaging that training is going to become. And then, of course, that's just what you deliver through your learning platform, but your quick reference guides, your, um, hey, have you thought about this moments, your ongoing uh, um, promotion of your program whether it's through International Privacy Day, um, some kind of event, whether it's having a channel on something like a Slack or another uh, online communication platform, just the multiple ways that you you reach people and you share those issues, it it helps to bring that awareness because training isn't just about sitting there and consuming. It's also about engaging. Yeah, we had one client on the security side uh, that the CISO at that organization hired a um, basically someone who was only in charge of communication, like wasn't a security subject matter expert at all, was only in charge of basically internal marketing, sending emails out, putting together training and posters. And uh, that went over really well. I was, yep. I wasn't actually, when I heard that that person was doing it, I was like, of course, like that makes tons of sense. They should do that. But it went over awesome. And I think to your point, that communication and training is a thoughtful activity. Do you, do you guys have someone on your team that's like charged with developing training or is that something you do? We do. Yeah, we have somebody who is dedicated to developing training, working closely with council as well to develop the training. The part that they've been most successful in is they actually go and speak to the business and say, yep. we're developing this content. What is it that, what are those moments for you that you hit those walls or what are the things that you do in these situations? And, and, and really kind of understanding it from their perspective rather than just doing training to somebody yep. it's bringing them along that journey the communication piece is so important how do you push out what is important what are the big topics that people are concerned about um how do you drive that engagement um we've been we've been pretty successful there uh, for exactly that reason having that having that personal or a subgroup of individuals who come together and and think about that and we've developed a curriculum so if you if you're going through your career at VMware, if you're in a certain area, we're going to say this is your your level one course, this is your level two course, and then maybe we're going to do a level three course, um, and and that helps to keep people on a pathway um, because new topics come up. Um, yep. you know, people are now talking about de-identification and anonymization way more than they did five years ago, and so what does that mean for different business teams, and how can we teach people what that means for them, and and what is the difference between the two in their in their use case um, is is you know, particularly interesting. Yeah, that's, I love the fact if you can make training applicable to the individual, it goes over so much better. Like, Hey, you're an engineer. Here's the stuff you're running into and why it's important or marketing. This is, and if you can do that, that's a game changer. So awesome. Yep. Yep. Shifting gears, hot topics. So there's a couple of things I wanted to uh, run by you and get your thoughts on. And I guess the elephant in the room is COVID-19. So, um, I think everybody's trying to figure out how in the heck to navigate this. And uh, we have, I had a team member who just uh, went to Italy mm-hmm. and uh, proposed to his future wife there. I'm a little jealous because uh, he nailed it. <laughs> and uh, 
and he, we were talking about in Italy, like they have the, uh, the green pass, which is basically their mm-hmm. COVID-19 passport. Uh, to do anything in Italy, he had to uh, show a, a paper pass, a paper vaccine card. And basically, uh, whenever someone saw that, they were like, oh, he's American. They have paper where everyone else has the passport. So, mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's an interesting issue, especially here in the U.S., about what are we going to do t- in terms of passports and what's the privacy implications? What do you think? What's yeah. the balance here? It it has been an incredibly challenging time for sure um, with with the pandemic, and certainly as everything was initially playing out, I think there were a lot of initial privacy concerns as well. How does privacy play a role here? Because this is a pandemic, this is now a public health issue. What should we be collecting? What should we know about? How we got the it was the first the contact tracing issue, yeah. uh, and how do we manage that? And how do we think about privacy there and differential privacy obviously became a, a much more hot button topic and now of course with the the passports um the key i think for me is that we if we can get to a place where we're able to share that information securely is first and foremost the paramount part and to the least amount possible um carrying around a, the paper card is obviously right now uh, a huge issue uh, there's a number of apps that now offer that ability to to have that on there and you have the green check um yeah, i think it's something that we're going to have to be living with for a little while now um i would i would personally uh, my own my own uh, preference is i would like to see some form of electronic record that i could show it doesn't necessarily have to give all of my information but it can show what i, I do of course the challenge there and i think the part that we have to be incredibly respectful and, and uh understanding of is there are some people who can't uh, be vaccinated um, or indeed choose not to be vaccinated and so we, we can't create as a situation where we um, aren't respecting those choices as well or, or, or those challenges as well uh, and I think that's what we're all trying to navigate with right now um, we don't have the answer uh, for sure uh, and I think that's really really where we're trying to figure this out because that's that's the real hurdle that we're, we're kind of challenging with how do we operate a society where there are parts of the population that can't be vaccinated um, yeah. and i think that's that's a a challenge that we've got to figure out a solution to and be respectful of as we're as we're navigating this for sure i, I think it's such an interesting problem because at its core it's like uh, i think people have various reasons they don't want to do it but one of the the core issues to me is we, we're talking about data aggregation digit digitization of health data um, and I think people are largely skeptical of that for various reasons. So it comes down to can you secure that data? Where does it live? How do you potentially anonymize it? And I think the bright, if I want to be optimistic about this, I'm like, I'm actually kind of happy that it's brought up these kind of questions because that's, mm-hmm. that is good for us to be thinking through how are we going to move forward as a society in this new digital way that we're going to do because your healthcare Mm -hmm. data is digital already somewhere and we should be asking those same types of questions and then i get into the fun conversations with like maybe blockchain and uh decentralization has a role to play and Mm -hmm. so i I expect there's going to be mass innovation there which i think is exciting Uh, and and i think you know the other part of this and and something we have to keep front of mind is that 
there are obviously some parts of the world where they will have a national health system. There will be a single uh, system through which they can have medical records. That's obviously something that we don't currently have in, in the United States, um, at least not to my awareness of, and, and certainly not on the scale that you've seen in other countries. So it makes it inherently more difficult. Um, yep. So, uh yeah, it's 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 going to be a challenge. It asks the big questions. I think your point about blockchain is a great one. And certainly in terms of an emerging technology is something that I think is particularly interesting because blockchain is, is potentially a great solution for security and protection of people's uh, information. But then it creates its own privacy concerns about, well, how do you do the right to be forgotten in something that is supposed to not ever forget? Um, and so it, it, there's always going to be that that um, that challenge um, that, that comes in when you're thinking about these great new solutions that could offer that enhanced security, but then presents a new privacy problem on, on the other hand. Yeah, I have this crazy idea when it comes to blockchain that someone can create a platform where everyone owns their data all the time and you can like grant it and and ungrant it for lack of a better word at any point so uh, I, I i can't wait to see what comes of that so bottom line is we have a, america i would say on one extreme very skeptical uh decentralized on the other side we have someone like china who has social credit score who has uh like a wechat which is you know facebook times 10 um who are also coming out with their own uh, privacy laws. Mm -hmm. What do you think about what China's doing? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always pleased to see a new privacy law, uh, to be completely honest. I think it's, it's one of those things that helps to make sure that we're driving the right conversations uh, across, across the globe. Um, the challenging part, of course, uh, was the fact that it was a very short implementation window, and we're still waiting on guidance on some of the of the particulars, which is uh, a, a real challenge. Uh, as you're thinking about how how do we do certain things, are we doing it in the right way? What does the guidance say? GDPR in that regard was very helpful. It was obviously quite expansive in terms of the information it provided. A lot of guidance came out. We're still waiting on that uh, from for the PIPL. Um, at its core, it has a lot of those similar uh, uh, call-outs uh, that we're very much used to. In fact, in some areas, it, it adds things like financial information um, as a definition of sensitive personal data, which, of course, is absent in other laws. But um, as I always jokingly say, I, I consider my financial information way more important than, than many other areas that you would otherwise consider uh, uh, sensitive. Um, the part that I think we're going to really start seeing the the challenge around is obviously starting to get into areas of localization, and yeah. um, we're obviously waiting on guidance as to what that means, um, particularly when we think about the volume of data uh, and the impact it has there. Um, but I would say, having having uh, rolled out global privacy programs, a lot of this is you you build your basics, you feel you build your fundamentals, um, and you're you're already heading in the right direction. Um, but I'm excited to see how that also We'll have a rising tide, a continuing rising tide of, of privacy law in, in the Asia Pacific region. We've been waiting for India for a little while now, and yep. uh, you know that might obviously keep things moving there. We're seeing uh, Japan and Korea with some very, very strong, uh, and Singapore with some very, very strong privacy laws. Um, so it, it is a generally exciting time, I think, as we start thinking about that that global rise in 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 how we look at privacy uh, as an as industry. Yeah. And you mentioned data localization, which brings to mind Shrims 2 for me because, um, you know, due to 
the the U.S. government's ability to basically subpoena information or, or do surveillance activities on organizations. I think the EU in particular, and likely the globe, is skeptical to let some data live in the U.S. So now you have data localization requirements in the EU, for example, and privacy shield being invalidated, mm-hmm. um, which is a big headache for a lot of companies because now you got to figure out solutions to be able to implement that effectively. Do you see that being resolved? Do you think that's going to be the new normal, or do you think we'll come up with some solution to be able to transfer stuff using like standard contractual clauses or something? Yeah, it's um, it's it's going to go on for a little while, I think. To be completely honest, um, the work that we have to do as part of transfer impact assessments to be able to think about the standard contractual clauses obviously adds a degree of due diligence. But in many ways, that's the work that you know we need to put in anyway when we're thinking about our data processing um, activities. Uh, I I think we're going to always be struggling and challenging and thinking about cross-border data transfers because there are always nuances on local laws and expectations on on how data are handled. Um, It's really interesting as we continue to globalize that we're increasingly getting local Um, and and wanting to keep more things closer to home because of making sure that we're following a similar approach. This is where obviously the big conversation about will we ever see a federal privacy law? Um, how will that help address the concerns that were that were raised in the Schrems two decision? Um, often come up, but I think realistically, as privacy professionals, we know now that if you want to use standard contractual clauses, these are the this is the framework. This is the impact assessment. Let's let's get to work. Um, and it's it frankly will help continue us to better understand the movement of data make sure that we're putting the right controls in place and frankly getting back to the core of the issue is what is the the impact to the individual and, and their rights and freedoms and we should have always been asking ourselves those questions anyway because at the end of the day that's that's the most important thing absolutely well Stuart, thanks so much for being on the show this has been an awesome conversation thank you for everything you do in the privacy leadership function uh, it's been awesome if you guys like content like this, you like hearing from security and privacy experts, entrepreneurs, you can check out this podcast, Tuesday Morning Grind, on any of the podcast apps that you listen to podcasts on. If you want to watch video while you listen, you can check out our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and look up Risk360. We have a playlist called Tuesday Morning Grind. Stuart, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate the time.